0: — Your
1: destination is on the left. —
0: Our first clue was an old sailboat looking very lost in the middle of the desert. It was propped up on its end, sticking straight up in the air. —
2: That used to be a knacker cat. — (laughs) Yep.
0: And it only got more surreal from there. My dad, my sister, and I had driven out to Joshua Tree, a couple hours inland of Los Angeles. We parked in front of an archway made out of car tires. The letters of the word WELCOME were hand-painted where hubcaps used to be. But the letters were out of order. I walked through the arch and into more than a dozen busted TV sets. They were lined up and stacked on top of each other, like a vintage storefront for a business that sold broken electronics. Behind that, my dad spotted a wave made out of a bunch of baking pans, suspended in midair. What do you think it was?
2: It looked like a helix. Oh! On the side.
0: I think it looks like a caterpillar. Mm -hmm. There were dozens of these structures, made out of everything from corrugated metal to bicycle wheels and bowling balls. And they were all around us, spread out over 10 acres of desert sand. I'm Sarah Wyman, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're headed to the Mojave Desert, where over the course of 15 years, the artist Noah Purifoy built these 10 acres of sprawling and intricate sculptures, he built them out of trash. Or at least, that's what it might look like at first glance. But to get the full picture, you have to get to know Noah, who he was, his mission, and his legacy, after this. I came to Noah Purifoy's Outdoor Art Museum with a little bit of context. I knew that Noah was what's called an assemblage artist, meaning he made sculptures out of discarded objects. I knew that back in the 1960s and 70s, he was a pioneer and a leader in the art community in Los Angeles. I knew that before that, he'd been a social worker, and before that, a World War II veteran. He was born in Alabama, in the Jim Crow South, and he died in 2004. But if you wandered onto this patch of land without any of that context, without knowing who this place belonged to or why they thought it was a good idea to weld a metal keg to a bicycle wheel, you might be kind of confused. You might not even recognize what you were looking at as art.
2: You have to have a broad mind to to really realize that it, it all works.
0: This is Dale Davis, He's a legend of the LA art scene in his own right. I worked for months to get in touch with him, because I wanted to talk to someone who knew Noah, and who could help me understand where his art came from.
2: You know, you, you also need explanation. And a Noah didn't feel like he had to give you an explanation. Who are you to ask him about his work? You know, and here here I am explaining his work in trying to help people understand his look at his work.
0: Dale was in his early twenties when he first met Noah. Noah was a couple decades older, but they had a lot in common. They were both artists for one thing, both teachers, both deeply involved in the tight-knit community of black artists in LA. And both Noah and Dale were born in Alabama.
2: We came from the same soul, Black America. You know, it's time to stand up, uh, dust yourself off, and be ready to fight. So that's, that's how I saw Noah, staying ready.
0: Dale recognized that no BS attitude in Noah from day one. And at first, he found it kind of annoying. Noah wasn't always easy to socialize with. He had a lot of ideas, a lot of passion, and he liked arguing.
2: He would invite people over for conversation. He wasn't innocently asking like, well, you know, what do you think about this or that? I realized he would take an opposite position for the sake of argument.
0: Why do you think he did that? Was it just to provoke a reaction? He
2: wasn't provoked, he was a provocateur. Think about the work. Think about the work he did. That was all provocateur ishness. Stick. <laughs> Excuse the word. I just <laughs> added all kinds of endings to the word.
0: Well, and you could argue that even his medium was provocateur ish. Yeah. Shtick. Uh,
2: yes. <laughs> yeah, Mismissness. Yeah. Look at the source.
0: The source of Noah's art was, again, mostly junk. Instead of sculpting with, say, clay or bronze, Noah worked with stuff like broken plates, charred metal, busted up furniture, whatever he could find, really. Today, you can see assemblage sculptures like this in most modern art museums. Think a fish statue made out of litter that washed up on the beach. But back in the 60s and 70s, when Noah was sculpting figures and structures out of corrugated metal and safety pins and spoons, he was a pioneer.
1: I mean, all of his works are really, when you first encounter them, they're quite mind-blowing, I think.
0: Yael Lipschutz also knew Noah Purifoy. And a few years ago, she co-curated an exhibition of his art at the L.A. County Museum of Art, LACMA. She also helped put together a book about Noah's life and work.
1: The works themselves are— they range from abstract meditations on form and color and composition and light to really difficult social situations.
0: Noah wasn't making art just for the heck of it. Every single one of his sculptures was making a point. Here's how Noah put it in an oral history interview he did with UCLA in 1990.
3: I had these things inside of me ready to be expressed,
0: mm-hmm.
3: but I didn't have a media through which to express them. I tried education, it didn't work. I tried social work, it didn't work. I tried this and that, didn't work. Mm-hmm. I didn't communicate to the people my deep feelings, and art being a non-verbal language enabled me to feel I was at least I understood myself, if others didn't.
0: Take, for example, one of Noah's earliest assemblage pieces. It was born from the Watts Riots of 1965. The Watts neighborhood was a predominantly Black community, and there was a history of tension between the residents and police. In the summer of 1965, what started as a traffic stop led to violent clashes between the police and the community — 34 deaths, more than 1,000 injuries, and the destruction of as many buildings. Noah and a fellow artist, Judson Powell, walked through the neighborhood together. filled a wagon with three tons of debris, stuff like charred furniture, twisted pieces of steel, and melted neon signs. The
1: idea of using found objects, that started in Watts when he he walked through Los Angeles and, and was just sort of... Stunned by by all the wreckage and the fires that had had devastated the neighborhoods and decided that he wanted to use this material to to make something and say something significant about, about the world and about life in this moment.
0: With help from four other artists, Noah and Judson carefully transformed the debris into a collection of sculptures called 66 Signs of Neon. One of the most striking ones is a piece called Sir Watts. It's made of what looks like the torso of a mannequin, hollowed out and filled with broken circuit boards. Wires pop out of the chest cavity. The mannequin only has one arm, and balanced on its neck is an old-fashioned silver military helmet. Sir Watts looks like he's part medieval knight, part cyborg, and made entirely of objects that had been destroyed during the riots. At the time, Noah said, we wanted to tell people that if something goes up in flames, it doesn't mean its life is over.
2: He was a person with the siren horn who was letting you know, wait a minute now, do you realize, do you realize the importance of what I've done with with this debris? This represents so much ugliness. And I'm going to put it in your face, because you need it. You need it. <laughs> because who else is going to tell you this? Who, who's going to remind you?
0: 66 signs of neon toured the country and was exhibited in a modern art gallery in Washington, DC. It briefly catapulted Noah into the capital-A art world, it was one of the first times assemblage work was taken seriously as a mainstream art form. But despite sixty-six signs of neon and all the acclaim it got, Noah was having a hard time selling his work.
2: He did get, you know, great acknowledgement for signs of neon, but it was limited. And in the end, what happened to a lot of the work? He ended up just setting out on the street. He had no place for it. No place to put it. What do you do? Set it on the street.
0: Noah talked about this in the oral history interview.
2: They don't,
3: <laughs> the average person who buys stuff don't want to be reminded of, their, of the problems of the world in, in their setting at home. I can't much blame them course. Well, life has taught me the difference between the kind of art that carries a social message and the kind that doesn't.
1: Here's Yael Lipschutz again. In 1972, he he basically left the art world, became really disenchanted with what he felt was its inability to affect change.
0: It wasn't until he retired and moved to the desert a little over a decade later that Noah started making art again. Some friends helped him start a foundation to preserve his work. They also donated a 10-acre piece of land in Joshua Tree to the foundation. I
1: remember him saying he wasn't able to get a show at the LA County Museum, so he created his own museum.
0: This one kind of reminds me of uh, the famous Dali painting with time, the one in the desert. Yeah, where the the clock is like melting over, yeah.
2: You go to it and you think, Wow, look at what he has to work with here. He gets to use all of this land in any way he wants to. He can blow it up. You know, and and I say that easily because that was his attitude. This is mine. I can do whatever if I want to with it. Nobody here to, to tell me what to do with any of it and an independent soul like he was. He was in heaven. In heaven.
0: Noah Purifoy spent the last 15 years of his life working in his outdoor museum. The objects he built into the sculptures nod at different eras of his life. Each one is a time capsule of sorts. Like, in one spot, Noah built a structure called shelter, a reference to some of what he saw when he worked with houseless people as a social worker. And in another piece that's impossible to miss, Noah has mounted what are clearly supposed to be two water fountains to a wall. One says colored, and one says white. One is a toilet bowl, and the other is a regular drinking fountain. Noah passed away in 2004, at the age of 86. And he left behind this trove of artwork, right in the middle of the desert, for anyone to see. When I visited with my family, it was cold outside and windy. We could see how the sculptures had faded under years of direct sunlight. In places where Noah had used cloth or textiles, some of it had been ripped up by the wind. In other spots, the metal had rusted. Some people have said Noah wouldn't mind seeing his work evolve in this way, It's a powerful statement in and of itself about how harsh the environment is, how the weather, climate change has the power to erase everything, how we're making more trash than we know what to do with. But the Noah Purifoy Foundation does preserve and maintain Noah's art in the desert. And before he died, he donated his personal archives to the Smithsonian. That's not the kind of thing a person does if they want their work to disappear. Noah Purifoy didn't want his work to disappear. He had something to say. And especially today, we still need to hear it. Huge thanks to Yael Lipschutz, Mark Greenfield, Carolina Miranda, and the UCLA Center for Oral History Research. Thanks also to Dale Davis, who deserves a whole episode of his own. If you want to learn more about his art and the gallery he co-founded, there's a link in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about the artistic community Dale and Noah were part of, you should check out the episodes of our podcast about Limerick Park and the Watts Towers Art Center. Those links are also in the episode description. And finally, thanks to my sister Dana and my dad. For bringing a playlist and lots of snacks for the long drive to Joshua Tree.
2: I think it's interesting too, you know, that that's outdoors in a very harsh environment. Uh huh. So,
0: this podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes
2: Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka,
0: Camille Stanley,
2: Willis Ryder Arnold, Baudelaire Seuss.
0: Sarah Kaplan Tracy Samuelson
2: John DeLore Casey Holford Peter Clowney
0: This episode was sound designed by Manolo Morales and mixed by
2: Luce Fleming
0: Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. From a windy patch of sand in Joshua Tree, I'm Sarah Wyman. Thanks for listening. Witness Docs from Stitcher.